You've been doing it since about 10 seconds after you were born. And since then, you've been doing it every minute of every day. You're doing it now, and most of the time you don't even think about it. You do it in your sleep. When somebody next to you does it too heavily or too loudly, it can be very uncomfortable. You want to call the police, perhaps. It can be awkward. It's called breathing. It keeps you alive. I heard a story about a man called Fred who was very sick, and so they sent for the pastor to go and visit him in hospital. And uh, the pastor went to visit Fred, and as the pastor's standing there talking to Fred, Fred's condition is deteriorating rapidly. And, and, uh, and he's trying to motion to the pastor, but the pastor's too busy in prayer. And eventually, Fred gets his attention and says, Can I have uh, emotions? Can he have a bit of paper and a pen? And he, he scribbles something, but just as he scribbles it, Fred breathes his last. Well, the pastor doesn't have time to, to read what's so he, he tucks a bit of paper into his pocket. And a few days later, they're having the funeral, and the pastor's speaking about Fred. And he says, he's actually wearing the same jacket as he wore in hospital that day. And he, he says, actually, I've just remembered Fred wrote something to me just before he died, and I'm sure it will inspire us and encourage us all. And he pulls out the bit of paper, and he reads it, and it says, you're standing on my oxygen tube. Please get off. Most of us don't realize how important breathing is until we can't do it. Maybe you've joined a gym and you go to one of those classes like body pump or something painful sounding like that and within three seconds you're thinking I need to go to Craig Avon Hospital. Maybe you're training for a marathon or a fun run and those two words should not go together. Fun and run just because they rhyme. Maybe for you exercise is walking up the stairs. Who knows? But those of you who smoke or used to smoke you know that uh, that affects your breathing. I had asthma when I was younger. My friends used to love making me laugh because I sounded like I was somewhere between laughing and wheezing. and <laughs> They thought it was hilarious. Uh, but that's the sort of friends I had. Breathing is so essential. It keeps us alive. But did you know that our God is a God who breathes? Our God is a God who breathes. He has a breath. And just as without natural breath, we would be physically dead, it takes the breath of God to keep us spiritually alive. God's breath brings spiritual life. And without the breath of God, we are spiritually dead. Last week, we started looking at Ezekiel 37. If you weren't here, we, the podcast is on wearehope.church. And uh, that's our website. Uh, and we saw how Ezekiel was a prophet in the 6th century before Christ. And he was speaking to God's people, God's people who had been called out of Egypt. Remember, God had delivered them through Moses. He had called them to be his own people. He had given them a covenant, an agreement. He said, I will be your God. I will protect you. I will bless you. You will be my people. You will be a light to the nations. And God, as always, keeps his side of the bargain. But his people didn't. They turned from him in immorality they, they turn from him in oppressing the poor, and they turn from him in idolatry. And idolatry is really this. Idolatry is spiritual adultery. Idolatry is, is having other gods alongside the God that you're meant to worship and serve. And, and here's what I discovered as I, as I studied this this week. I, I discovered that that when God's people committed idolatry, they didn't turn away from Yahweh completely. So I always figured they turned their backs on Yahweh and went to worship the other gods. They still went to the temple. 
They still sacrificed to Yahweh. They still went through all the religious motions that they'd done before. But they also worshipped gods alongside the one true God. They wanted the best of both worlds. And it got me thinking that for me as a Christian and for us as, as those of us who, who would call ourselves Christians here, idolatry for us isn't that we're probably going to go out and put a little statue up in our, you know, our kitchen and, and bow down and start to worship it, that we're not going to start worshiping Buddha or Krishna and turn away from Jesus completely. Idolatry from us is that we start worshiping things alongside Jesus. That yes, we come to church, we worship, we lift our hands, we sing to Jesus, we do all those things, but other things start to take our affection and devotion that should only be for Jesus Christ. We have little idols, little pursuits, influences, ambitions that are in competition and contradiction to the God we sing to every Sunday. God has a place in our lives, but sometimes God doesn't have all our lives. We spiritually two-time him. We cheat on him. And some of the affection and devotion that should only be his goes elsewhere. Imagine ladies who are, those ladies who are, who are married here, imagine that you, you discover you've run out of milk and uh, as happens often in our house and you have no money, no cash and you say to your husband, look, can I take a fiver out of your wallet because that's what two litres of milk costs apparently um, in our house. And... Uh, and 20 goes missing. And, uh, and, and so you go into your husband's wallet and, uh, and, and as you open his, his wallet, you, you, you see a photo of you and you're like, oh, isn't that lovely? He's got a photo of me. And then you look and you go, and who's that other girl? <laughs> and then you flip open the wallet and there's a picture of somebody else. And you think, oh. Now, what would you think in that moment? Do you think to yourself, well, at least he's got a picture of me. It doesn't matter about these other girls. By the laughter, probably not. Do you think to yourself, well, that's his own private matter. It's between him and them. It's nothing to do with me. Do you get out a ruler and measure it? And Well, your picture's a centimeter bigger than theirs, so he must love you more. Or do you go into him and say, who are these beep girls? I think you would do the former why, or the latter why, because he's your husband. And he should not share his affection and devotion. There's an exclusive affection and devotion that he committed to you that cannot be shared with somebody else. You know, the Bible says that our God is a jealous God. That doesn't mean he's like some 14-year-old boy who's, who's, who fancies a girl and she fancies someone else. That is not what, that's not what it means when it says our God. It means that our God is a God who says, I have an affection for you that I cannot share with somebody else. And I want you to have an affection for me, a devotion to me, a worship for me that you will not share with anything or anyone else. I don't want to be first place in your heart. I want to have all of your heart. See, sometimes here's what we do as Christians. We go God first and then we make a list. It is not that God is first and then we make a list. It is that God is the whole list. God is the paper that the list is written on. And everything in our lives is built upon that foundation of our relationship with him. Idolatry is anything or anyone else that infringes upon that exclusive relationship that we have with God Look at what God says to them through Ezekiel. 
Look at the language that God uses. How I have been grieved by their adulterous hearts, which have turned away from me, and by their eyes, which have lusted. Look at the language God uses. They've lusted after idols. And then he says in Ezekiel 16, you adulterous wife, you prefer strangers to your own husband. God is jealous for his people. Why? Because he knows that he is our best and that anything or anyone else we give our hearts to will not satisfy. Anyone or anything else we give our affection or devotion to, to find that that which we can only find in God, our creator and our maker, will never satisfy us. It will always lead us to emptiness and heartache. So eventually Yahweh, God, takes his hand of blessing. He takes his hand of protection off from his people because they have broken covenant. And the Babylonians come in and they carry them off into exile. And for 70 years, God's people are away from their own land. They're captives in Babylon. That's where we get Psalm, uh, Psalm 137, which was popularized by Boney M, remember, by the rivers of Babylon. Believe it or not, they were singing a psalm. They, God's people are in Babylon they're weeping and they're singing, how, they're saying, how can we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? We want to be back in Israel. We want to be back in Jerusalem. Don't tell us to sing the Lord's song. We want to be back. If only they'd have wanted to sing the Lord's song as much when they were in Jerusalem. See, sometimes it's only when we lose what we had that we realize what we had. They're longing to get back and worship God. If they'd have done it back then, they wouldn't be in the problems they are now. But even though they had rejected God, God still loves them. Even though they had rebelled against him, he still pursues them. And one of the things I I, I love about the Bible is that, that God... Like it mixes us metaphors here, you're going to see in a second. God will use whatever human language he can to express to us how much he loves us. So we've just read some verses a minute ago where it says, God describes himself as a husband and his people have committed adultery. They're an adulterous wife. Look at what he says through the prophet Isaiah. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born, though she may forget I will not forget you. God will use whatever language he can. He will mix his metaphors. One minute he'll talk about himself as a husband, next minute as a mother, because he's just trying to express to his people how passionate, how affectionate he is towards us. And so God sends his prophets, first of all, to call his people to repentance, because the first step to getting right with God is always repentance. It's turning away from the things we have done. It's changing our minds about the things we have done. And it's saying, I'm not going to live there. I'm not going to do that anymore. And there's some of us this morning are in that place where we know the emptiness of sin and we need to repent. We need to get right with God. We're like the prodigal son sitting in the pig pen, surrounded by pigs and mud, and we need to get up and go back to the Father. That's where it starts. Unless we get up and turn back to the Father, nothing ever happens. But the prophets, as well as pronouncing repentance, also declared that God had a better future. God has got a better future for his people. No matter how far you've fallen, no matter how distant you are, God would say to you, I have got a better future for you. There is more for you than you see. There is more for you than you have experienced. And he begins to speak blessings over his people, promises of blessings, promises of restoration and renewal, words of hope into hopelessness and declarations of his favor 
into their future. And that's where we find Ezekiel in chapter 37. Last week, we had this awful scene where Ezekiel is brought into this valley of dry bones and there's bones everywhere and they're white and they're scorched and they're dry. It is a picture of desolation, of the spiritual barrenness of his people, of the deadness and dryness of their souls, that they are so far from God that they are spiritually dead. Look at what it said. The hand of the Lord was on me and he brought me out by the spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me to and fro among them. And I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. So Israel are spiritually dead. They're dry, they're defeated, they're destroyed, they're scattered. But look at what God tells Ezekiel. Prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. He tells him, stop talking about the bones and start speaking to the bones. And we become really good at talking about our problems. We become really good at talking about the things in the world that aren't right. We can become really good at talking about the things in our, in our health that aren't good. And sometimes I think God would say to us, stop speaking about your problem and start declaring my word to your problem. Stop speaking about the mountain and start speaking to the mountain. And tell the mountain in the name of God to move. Because nothing happens until God's people take God. God's word and start speaking it over their lives. Don't speak about the bones, speak to the bones. And look at what happens when he does. So I prophesied as I was commanded, verses 7 and 8. As I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling. At first he hears a sound. And we said last week, sometimes we sense change in our lives before we see it. Sometimes we sense change before we see it. We feel things are shifting. We feel things are stirring. We just get this sense that, that, that the period of dryness and barrenness and death is coming to an end. What was it that the, the writer of Song of Songs said? Winter is over. We sense that that long winter we have been through is coming to an end. The little shoots are starting to appear. The little green buds are starting to appear. And sometimes we sense it before we see it. It's hard to articulate. It's hard to express. But we just know that God is up to something. We just know that something is shifting. Something is shaking. Things are becoming different. There's a sound before there's a sight. And the sound intensifies and, and, and Ezekiel hears a rattle, but the rattle then becomes a noise, and the noise becomes a movement, and the, the, the skeleton, skeletons come together, and they stand up, and the bones start to get joined together, and there's tendons and muscles and flesh and skin. And look at the ver- end of verse 8. I looked, and tendons and flesh appeared, and them and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. There was no breath in them. And without breath, there's no life. Some of you will have heard of the band Delirious. Martin Smith, the lead singer, songs like I Could Sing of Your Love Forever, which is one of those songs that if you get into it, it seems to go on forever, isn't it? It's one of those songs that after you've sang the chorus 432 times, you're like, I, I need to stop singing this song forever. Uh, but, but I love Delirious. I, I've seen them many times. But I was reading, because I, I love them, I was reading Martin Smith's uh, one of his, his autobiographies recently, he's got this little autobiography, and he was talking about when he was born. Um, and in the first chapter, he, he says this. He said, my mum and dad still talk about the day. At two months old, I developed bronchitis, which gradually worsened. 
At six months old, when my parents rushed me back to the hospital, I was diagnosed with bronchial pneumonia. I couldn't breathe. I wasn't crying. I wasn't even making a sound. So the medics took me and placed me inside an iron lung, a covered and sealed cot designed to get little bodies like mine breathing again. My parents had no idea whether I would make it out alive. They watched me lying silent. Can you imagine being a parent watching your little two-month-old boy? They watched me lying silent, my life in the hands of this strange-looking piece of equipment, and all they could do was pray, and their prayer was simple. Thank you for giving Martin to us. We are willing to give him back to you, but could you please breathe into his lungs and let him make a noise? And then Martin says this, I guess God heard them. I guess he took them up on their offer. It was a brave prayer for them to pray, but even today they know that God has kept them at their word. Breathe into his lungs and let him make a noise. And God did that for Martin Smith's parents. God breathed into their little baby and that breath brought life and that life produced a noise and that noise became a sound and that sound became songs of worship that have resonated and resounded across the globe as thousands and millions of people have declared that they're going to be history makers in this land, that they could sing of his love forever, that we will shout to the north, the south, the east and the west. And it all began with a prayer, God, breathe into his lungs. God breathes and it imparts life. And that's what we see here. You see, the word of God was declared to those bones and there was structure. There was bones, there was tendons, there was flesh, there was skin, but there was no life. It had all the looks, but no life. It had been restructured, but it hadn't been revived. And isn't that a picture of dead religion? Religion looks good on the outside, but there is no life in religion. It has structure, but no spirit. It has the form, but it is not filled. As Bono from U2 famously said, religion is what you're left with when the spirit has left the building. Religion is what happens when the spirit has left the building. And all over this island of Ireland, north and south, and this is not a criticism, this is simply fact, we have thousands upon thousands of churches. We have churches in every town, every village. We have churches in every corner. And how much spiritual life do we have? We have structure, but we don't have the spirit. We have the form, but it's not filled. We have people who are searching for God, and when they come into our churches, all they find is dead dry religion. They find bones, they find bodies, but with no life in them. They find institutions and orders, but no Holy Spirit passion and power. It's like the church that Jesus addresses in Revelation 3. He says, I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. I have been in churches that have brilliant reputations. I have been in churches that are renowned all over the world. And when you walk into them, you're like, what has happened here? I just don't feel the Spirit of God in this place. May that never be said of Hope Community Church. May we be a church that, when you come in here, it exceeds our reputation. That our reputation wouldn't be that we are a life-giving, lively, spirit-filled church. When you walk in here, you go, there's nothing there. When people come in here, I want them to find a place filled with the presence of God. Filled with the life of God. Filled with the breath of God. 
These people in Revelation, it's like they're spiritual zombies. They're the walking dead. And that's what most people in our country think of when they think of church. They think of dead, dry religion. So what's the solution? We need the breath of God. Verses 9 and 10. We need the breath of God. Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and said to it, this, said it, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Come breath, come breath from the four winds and breathe into the slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. So Ezekiel is commanded to prophesy again, to speak the word of God. But this time not to the bones, but to the wind. He's to speak to the wind and he calls it to come and fill these dead bodies. And the Hebrew word for wind is ruach. But it's the same word in Hebrew for ruach. Ruach is the same word in Hebrew for breath, wind and spirit. Breath, wind, and spirit are all the same words. So the wind of God and the breath of God and the spirit of God are the same thing. It's the same word as we have in Genesis 2 when God takes the dust off the earth and he forms man. And it was he, the man was formed, but he had no life. And what does God do? It says that God breathed. He ruacted. He, he breathed. Jewish mystics call it the cosmic kiss where God took man up and he breathed his life into him and he became a living being. The man was formed but not filled until God breathed. You see, we need the word of God. You know I love the word of God. We are a people of the word of God, but we need the spirit of God. We don't want to just be formed by the word. We need to be filled with the wind. It's not just about reading the Bible or preaching the Bible. We need the breath of God to take the word of God and breathe life upon it, that it would be speaking to our hearts and transforming our lives, that we would go out into the world and change this community and change this society with the life of Jesus Christ. The Bible says, in fact, that that the breath of God that raised Christ from the dead lives in you. That dead body that had been there from Friday. On Sunday, the breath of God entered it and that body was brought to life. That life of Jesus, that resurrected life the Bible says lives in you. Look at what it says. The spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you. And he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. Because of his spirit lives in you. You see, you can be physically alive but spiritually dead. If you're not a Christian, you are physically alive, but you're spiritually dead. That's what Ephesians 2 said. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. You were created spirit, soul, and body. But when man sinned, our spirit died. Our spirit became dormant. But when you are born again, when you become a Christian, God's spirit, God's Holy Spirit, God's breath comes and lives in you, and it brings your spirit to life. His spirit resides in your spirit. Look at what Jesus said. Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh. In other words, humans can only give birth to humans, but only the spirit of God coming and living within you gives birth to spirit. So we need the word of God, but we need the spirit of God. And the power comes when this happens. The power comes when the word and the spirit come together. When the word of God and the spirit of God come together, Look at what Jesus said. 
The Spirit gives life. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of spirit and life. You see, I, I, am, I am an evangelical. I know we don't like labels sometimes, but I'm, I'm very happy to call myself an evangelical. But I'm also very aware that there are many very sound evangelical churches all over this country who are brilliant with the word. They could quote you more Greek than I will ever know. They know their doctrines. They know their theology inside out. They have got all of that down to a T, but there's no life of the Spirit of God. They're great with the Word, but they need the wind of God. They've been raised to new life. They've encountered the cross. They've even found Easter Sunday, but they've never made it to Pentecost. And Jesus said, don't even try to go out and live this Christian life until not only you've encountered the cross, not only you've encountered the risen Jesus, but until you've been filled with the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. We need Pentecostal power. We need the power and the Spirit of God to do what Jesus would want us to do. And then there's other churches. If I'm going to have a go at the evangelicals, I'm also a charismatic. I am charismatic to the core. I used to think charismatic was a type of washing machine. I, I'm charismatic. But you know what the problem with us is? We can be all spirit at times. It's about hyper-spiritual experiences and emotionalism and weirdness. Charismaniacs, I call us sometimes. And what happens is we fall apart. Why? Because we have no foundation in the Word of God. We're blown about all over the place by every new teaching, every new book that comes out, every new preacher on the God channel. Because he's on the God channel doesn't mean that he's sound. Doesn't mean he's not sound either. But if what he says or what she says lines up with the word of God, brilliant. If it doesn't, ignore them. And so we're all spurred at times. But we push the word to one side and we're chasing experiences and we're chasing prophets and we become conference junkies. Just trying to get the next prophet to pray for us. And God said, why are you seeking after something that I've already told you in my word? But when we have the word of God and the spirit of God, when we have the form and the filling, when we have the life of God, then God moves in power. We're resurrected and revived. And isn't that what we see in creation in the beginning? God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless. And empty. There was something there, but it was all over the place. It was formless. It was chaos. There was no order. But look what happens. The Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So we've got the Spirit. We've got formlessness. We've got chaos. And we've got the Spirit hovering over the waters. Look at what we read next. And God said. The Word of God meets the Spirit of God. Let there be light. And there are was like when the word and the spirit comes together that's when things happen it's not word or spirit it's not either or it's both and we are a word and spirit church here at hope we honor the bible as the inspired word of god and we teach it and we seek to live it but we desperately need god's spirit We need the Spirit of God to take the Word of God and apply it to our lives. We need the Spirit of God to touch us. We need the Spirit of God to revive us. We need the Spirit of God to renew us. We need the Spirit of God to change us. Otherwise, we dry up. 
We become like those people who Timothy talked about, in, or Paul talked about in Second Timothy, that they have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. It's easy to go through the motions of a form of godliness, but to have no power there. We need the breath of God to fill us afresh. As I finish up, a number of years ago, there was an article in a newspaper in the States, and it talked about how in, in, in Los Angeles there was a huge pollution problem in the air, a huge smog problem. And they commissioned some research and they brought in a team of experts to, to look and figure out how they could get rid of the pollution in Los Angeles, how they could get rid of the, the dense smog that, that accumulated there sometimes. And the people did their research and they called the mayor and the, all the city officials back and, and, and they presented their findings. And this is what they said at the end. They said... Basically, there's nothing can be done. There's no solution to the smog problem. There's no solution to the pollution problem. But here's what jumped out at me as I, as, I, as I read this. The newspaper said that after sharing his report and coming to the conclusion that there was no solution, the expert paused and he said something just as kind of an afterthought. This is what he said as kind of an afterthought. He said, what do you really need is a win from somewhere else to come and sweep through the city and blow all of this pollution out to the sea. What you really need is a wind to come and blow all the pollution out. And what I need in my own life, which can be polluted by sin and stuff and other things, I need the wind of God to come and blow. I need the presence and the power and the spirit of God to come and blow. I need the, 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 the breath of God to come and fill me. I need, I need the life of God to get rid of the dust and dirt in my life. Verse 10. So I prophesied as he commanded me. And breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. As the word of God was combined with the spirit of God, there was resurrection and there was revival. These dead, dry bones were totally transformed, not in just a collection of random individuals, but into a vast, powerful army, a spirit-filled community. You know, prophetically, I believe this is a picture of what's been going on in Israel since 1948. Some of you who know a bit of history will know that Israel were scattered for centuries. They were dispersed throughout the nations. The Jews were dispersed throughout the nations for centuries. And since 1948, what have we found? We found uh, the dry bones coming back together. The nation of Israel has been reformed. And this isn't a political statement. I simply believe it's prophetically, biblically right. So we have a reformed, restructured nation of Israel. But what are they lacking? Spiritual life. And I believe that one day this prophecy shows us that the Spirit of God is going to breathe upon the nation of Israel. And God is going to bring revival and they're going to recognize that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. I believe that's what this is promising. I believe that's one element of this prophetic statement from Ezekiel. But it's also a prophetic picture of the church. Us, the Christ-centered community of God's people in every nation and every generation. Selwyn Hughes once wrote this. What is the church? It is not a building, but a body. A body empowered and made alive by the Holy Spirit. And the secret of her survival in this world is in continually opening herself to the Spirit who gave her life. She was not only born of the Spirit, but survives and thrives 
by the Spirit. No spirit, no life. And revival is really, it starts with the church. You see, Martin Lloyd-Jones was right. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, that revival has to start with the church because for something to be revived, it had to once be alive and now be dead. Awakening is when it moves out of the church, out into the community. But revival starts with you and me. And I love revival. Revival has become a dirty word in many places because we've prayed it and prophesied it and not seen it. And I love revival. I have books, probably 50 to 100 books on revival. I love revival. I believe God is going to send revival. I believe he calls his people to pray for revival. I'm all about revival. But revival starts with me. There was an evangelist called Gypsy Smith. Uh, in the 19th century, I was trying to figure out, when, yeah, 19th century, what a name, Gypsy Smith. <laughs> Everybody calling you Gypsy. Um, and when he would, would come to a new town to preach, he would do something before he would, he would start his services. He would come to the outskirts of the town and he would get down in the dirt and he would draw a circle in the dirt and he would kneel on it. And he would say, God, send revival to this town and let it start. Inside this circle. God send revival to Craig Alvin. And let it start inside this place. God send revival to Portadown. And Banbridge. And Guilford. And Tandragee. And Lurgan. And Warrenstown. And Donnacloney. And Market Hill. And Moira. And let it start inside me. God, may your spirit take your word and do something in our hearts and our lives. Not just to revive us, but to awaken this city and this land.